Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 7. We're continuing on in our year-long study through this gospel account. And so I'd invite you to open up your Bible there. If you don't have one, there should be one right there in front of you. Black Pew Bible, you can open up. We're going to be in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you have no idea where that is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. It's not a sin to use it. And feel free to have that open. If you do not have a Bible of your own, there are some blue paperback Bibles on the way out on the little table in the narthex. If you want to grab one of those, write your name in it. Please keep it. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word um, in front of you and, and to have to take home. We will happily buy another one. So please take one of those home with you. I'm going to be in John chapter 7, so as you're opening up there, look for the big number 7, and then we're going to look, we're just going to start the chapter, we're going to do verses 1 through 39, so a big chunk this morning. Uh, And as you're opening up there and as you're turning there, I want you to think about something that you've probably seen if you've ever seen some sort of like an action movie or like some sort of action drama before. Typically what happens is the good guys are hiding in the woods. And they look out, they might be in, a, in the woods, they might be behind a building, they might be in a bunker, whatever it is. They're in some sort of sheltered location. And they look out and what they see is the bad guys approaching. So the good guys are hiding and the bad guys are coming near. And they usually, you know, have weapons or if it's a kind of an old school, they have, you know, clubs and sticks. I mean, you, you obviously look out and you're like, those are the bad guys. And they're coming to hurt the good guys. And so uh, typically what happens in this scenario is a few of the soldiers that are hidden, a few of the good guys, they want to attack early. They want to go ahead and just shoot early. They want to go ahead and fight early. But typically what happens is the leader of the group will call them off and they will say, no, 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 wait. Wait for it. And a lot of times that decision will be met with fierce opposition. And so as you see in the movie, the tension is rising. The bad guys are getting closer. The good guys are hiding. You've got that one guy who's there like, let's do it, let's go. And the leader is saying, wait, wait for it, wait, wait for it. No, not yet. Wait, what they're getting, wait. And you can feel that tension rise. And I'm going to leave you with that tension. R.C. Sproul, who's now in heaven with the Lord and was a great gift to the church, would tell his seminary students when he was a seminary professor in class to watch for tension in any biblical narrative, because as they were studying the narrative, the tension helped you understand the big picture that was developing. So Sproul would always tell his students in seminary, watch for tension in the text, and you'll see how it moves the narrative forward. And so as we think about this narrative and where we are in the Gospel of John so far, over the last six chapters, we've seen the tension rising, most notably between Jesus and the Pharisees, and then Jesus and also the crowd, as it's referenced. And we've seen Jesus double, even triple down on his claim that he is the Son of God and not shy away from challenging the religious customs of the day in his words and in his actions. And what that led to was even more tension and led to even more rejection. And so remember, we're in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say someone's here right now. The whole Old Testament says someone's coming. The Gospels say someone's here. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. And so Jesus is claiming, I am that promised one from the Old Testament. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. And I'm here right now in your midst. And as he claims that and doubles down, it's met with rejection over and over and over again. And the tension rises. In chapter 5, verse 18, we saw that the Pharisees were seeking to kill him for claiming to be the Son of God. Kill him for blasphemy. 
And when we looked at the, the passage last week in chapter 6, verses 66 and 67, we see that the crowd deserted him when they realized that he was not a vending machine who would just kind of keep giving them all the stuff, nor would he be the one who would free them from the occupying Roman army. And Jesus also referenced tension that existed between him and his followers in what is commonly referred to as the world in this passage, which is the larger sphere of the culture under the deception of Satan that hates God, that hates his kingdom. And we see echoes of Genesis 3 in this, where there is this enmity between the seed of the woman, the children of God, and the seed of the serpent, Satan and his allies. And so you see echoes of this throughout the scripture as we see this tension that constantly exists. And we see the world, everything that is opposed to God, this culture that hates God, those would be the bad guys, right? But we've also been introduced to another sphere of the culture that's also under a different type of deception, and that would be religious deception. And the amazing thing about this group is this group would be what we would typically call the good guys, if we were writing the story, but even they've been deceived into thinking that mechanistic law-keeping and religious ritual and ethnic heritage, that these are the things that merit salvation. This is how you get salvation. And this group keeps missing the Messiah in their midst because they're blinded by their spiritual pride, they're blinded by their religious performance, and they are way too focused on themselves. And because of that, they miss the Messiah who's right there in front of them. They're so busy trying to look religious and straighten everyone else out that they miss their own sin, and they miss their own need for a Savior and a Redeemer. And so as we read this text this morning, there's some Jewish festival language that's going on. We'll talk about that in a moment. I did a deep dive into the Jewish festivals this past week as I was studying. But on this initial reading, I want you to keep an eye and an ear out for tension and rejection. I want you to keep an eye out in this passage because it's going to help us see the big picture of what God is doing. So keep an eye out and an ear out for tension as we look. Well, let's look to God's Word. We're going to look at John chapter 7, verses 1 through 39. I'm going to read it at a good clip, so keep up. But I'll remind you that even as we read this, these are the words that matter. These are the words that really matter. And so let's give attention to the reading of God's Word, John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he, uh, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. 
Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me, because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come to him, and he sent me. I come from him, and he sent me. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, he will do more signs than this man has done. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about these these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's a lot of verses. But may the Lord add to the reading and the preaching and the hearing of his word, because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to this. Pray, Pray with me. Father, as we consider your word this morning, as we consider... Um, this passage, we ask and pray that you would give us help. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our hearts, and Lord, that you would speak to us the words of life. Where else are we going to go? And so, Father, help us with all humility to look to your word. Be with me as I preach, and pray that uh, anything I say that is wrong would be quickly forgotten. And Lord, take your word and seal it into our hearts, Lord, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, back in 2007, a man entered a subway in D.C., and he began to busk, which is play for music. You know, you typically go into these places, they have a little basket, or they have their guitar case that's open, and they, he entered in and started playing uh, a violin and jeans and a baseball cap. And he played for roughly 40 minutes, and during that time, exactly 1,097 people passed him by, only 27 threw any money in the case, and only seven really stopped to listen for any amount of time. And his total haul for the outing was $52.17. And, and you think about this and you go, this seems like hardly a noteworthy event. I myself tried busking once. I think I made six bucks when it was all said and done. Uh, but I enjoyed playing out on the street. But as I think about my own attempt at this, and you think about this attempt, the thing that was different is I'm not a world-renowned violinist. My name is not Joshua Bell. And three days earlier, I had not packed out a performance hall in Boston with tickets costing well over $100 each. 
That was the guy who went into the little area called an arcade outside of the subway and started playing. And unlike him, I also was not playing a rare Stradivarius violin worth three and a half million dollars. And the most interesting thing about this scene, and you can actually pull up a YouTube video about this, and you can watch the entire time, the whole 40 minutes that he was there. The most interesting thing about that scene that played out in the subway was the fact that there was so much activity that was going on. All these people coming and going in this busy D.C. subway. And really, only one person, a lady who recognized him and dropped a $20 bill in the case, recognized the greatness in their midst. Here is this guy who is not in a performance hall in Boston, but he is just as good, playing this super rare, unbelievably cool violin worth $3.5 million. Could you imagine, actually? I would not even want to get within 100 feet of that thing. And he's, he's sitting here playing these songs that he had played in this concert hall. He's charging $100 a ticket, and he's right there in their midst, and nobody, nobody sees it. Nobody recognizes it. Hardly anybody really even slows down. And you think this one lady threw 20 bucks in the till because she's the only one that really recognized him. That was almost half of what he took in during the entire time. Most of the passerby had grown so accustomed to the familiar sights and sounds of the people busking in the subway that they never even broke stride or really never even gave a sideways glance. It was just another guy playing in the subway. And they missed it. Now, you're like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Put yourself in the Old Testament temple in Jerusalem at one of the great high feasts. And think about all the activity that's going on, the coming and the going and the rituals and the candles and the songs and the stuff. Think about, put yourself there. So much activity, all of it going on and all of it pointing to God's provision. Then the Messiah, the one whom God promised to provide, actually shows up. And the ones tasked with telling others about him are the exactly the same ones who are trying to get others to ignore him while they plot to kill him. That's exactly what's going on in this passage. Jesus interrupts the status quo in the midst of all the activity and the religious leaders start freaking out. Now before you check out, and before you think, oh, that's them, I want us to recognize that we do this spiritually too. That we can be surrounded by and take part in a ton of religious activity and miss Jesus altogether. You can do lots of churchy stuff and miss Jesus. You can be a part of all this activity that's going around you and miss the Messiah. It's so easy to do. Churches can easily turn into busy social clubs instead of houses of worship, prayer, and discipleship. And actually an entire word has been invented to describe this. That word is churchianity. Churchianity. You do all the churchy stuff, but you miss Christ. You miss Jesus. My prayer is, Lord, may this church never be a churchianity church. And if we are, may we repent quickly as we want to focus on Christ. And so the big question this morning as we consider this text is, I want us to ask the question, how do we avoid missing Jesus in the midst of our religious lives? How do we avoid missing Jesus in the midst of our religious lives? Two points, two big ways this morning as we answer this question. If you're a note-taking type of person, these will be our two points. Number one, we have to recognize the distractions in our hearts. Number two, we return to Jesus. So we recognize the distractions that exist in our hearts. And number two, we return to Jesus. Let's look at that first point. We have to recognize the distractions that are in our own hearts. This is basically verses 1 through 36, and it's going to be the longer point. So let's dive in. 
Okay, last week we saw Jesus being rejected by the crowd, and now we see him being rejected by his own family. Look at verse 5. Not even his brother, even his brothers did not believe in him. Think about that. It's a troubling thought. These brothers had grown up with Jesus, followed his ministry, probably witnessed some of his miracles, and yet still had not come to faith. They were distracted by the allure of notoriety, not a genuine desire to see their brother worshipped as the one true Messiah. And this can be a distraction for us as well. We want the notoriety upon ourselves, not upon Christ. We want to keep some of it for us. And in verse 7, Jesus admits that the world hates him because he's speaking out against its evil. And that anyone associated with him would also face scorn and rejection from the world. We talked about this last week. Now look at verse 1. Jesus also knew that the Jews were seeking to kill him, and so he had kind of relocated up north to Galilee. And he was fully aware of his future on the cross, but he also knew that all of it was to be done according to the sovereign plan of God. And in verse 8, he says, My time has not yet fully come. Think about that opening illustration. Not yet. Wait for it. My time has not yet come. It's not that Jesus was being subversive. He knew that the cross was there. He knew it was coming. But he knew that his time was not yet fully come. And so his brothers leave for Jerusalem. Jesus stays in Galilee. And in verse 2, we're told about this Feast of Booths that was at hand. It's a Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And also, uh, if you're Jewish or have a Jewish friend, you may have heard of it as the Feast of Sukkot. S-U-K-K-O-T. That's the Hebrew word for tent. It's the plural word for tent. So the, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Sukkot. It was one of the three required feast days for Jewish, Jewish men who lived within 20 miles of the temple to come and appear in the temple. We see that in Leviticus 30, uh, 23. If you want to go do a deep dive on that, Leviticus 23 is where you go. These three required feasts were the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And the ancient historian Josephus called this the most holy and eminent of all the feasts. And there was this week-long festival that began and ended on a Sabbath day. And it occurred in the fall around the time of the final harvest, typically like in October from everything that I've gathered, which is typically around the time of the harvest of grapes and olives is typically what's going on. And it also commemorated the time when Israel wandered in the wilderness and lived in tents. It was a reminder of how God had tabernacled, had tented with his people as he moved around with them. It was a, there was a, a, a look back to say, look at what God has done. He's provided for us through the harvest, but yet also he tabernacled and walked with us in the, in the wilderness wanderings. And so what families would do is they would set up these little tents, these little temporary structures, these Sukkot, and they would live in them for seven days. And it was a time of rejoicing and thankfulness to God for His past and present provision and faithfulness. It was almost like a national campout for a week. They camped out in these tents and they ate in them and they, and they just rejoiced in all that God had done and say, look at how God has been just kind for us and has provided for us. But there was a future aspect to this as well, where the feast would end with a prayer to God for rain and for future crops and ask for future blessings. And also Zechariah chapter 14 would be read, which spoke of a future prophecy when all nations would one day celebrate the Feast of Booths. So there was a past reminder of all that God had done. There was a present kind of rejoicing in what He had done, but also a future aspect to this feast. 
And then look in verse 10. Jesus had planned to go to the feast the whole time. It was required in God's law, and he kept the law perfectly, but he wanted to go privately. And he went privately without his entourage because his time had not yet come. Because something bigger was already planned. There was this kind of wait for it aspect. Not yet. Not quite yet. And look at verses 11 through 13. And think about this joyous celebration of thanksgiving that's going on in the holy city. And now think about the temple leaders scouring. The Greek word there implies this constant pursuit. These these religious leaders, these Pharisees, are scouring the city looking for Jesus, so much so that families were afraid of them. Do you see in verse 13, it says that many were afraid to speak out for fear of them. And you think about all of this that's going on in the midst of this this temple celebration, this time of rejoicing. These religious leaders are so constantly scouring the city, looking for Jesus, that those families living in tents become afraid of them. The contrast here is just absolutely striking and the tension that is growing. But instead of making Jesus disappear as they wanted to, the incessant action of those looking for Jesus actually stirred up more intrigue about him. Like, who is this guy that they're constantly looking for? And you see in verse 14, Jesus goes to the temple, he comes out of obscurity, and he begins to teach. And the people realize immediately that Jesus was different, that nobody had ever talked like him before. No one was able to take the scripture and apply it in such a way as Jesus did. He just is something that they just immediately recognized about him. This guy's different. In verse 15, the the Pharisees marveled at his ability to apply the scriptures like a rabbi, but they missed his teaching because Jesus didn't have the proper credentials to be accepted by them. And a similar charge would later be leveled against Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. So you think Jesus comes and he starts teaching in the temple and the Pharisees are like, who is this guy? Where is... How does he do this? He did not come through one of our rabbinical schools. He doesn't have the right credentials and diploma. Who does he think that he is? And in verse 16 through 18, Jesus reveals their true motives as they, he points out that they're seeking their own glory. Basically, what he tells these religious leaders when they come in, he essentially says, well, I brought my diploma with me from heaven. You want to see my credentials? I brought it with me from heaven. And I'm going to go back there. They should have recognized Jesus' authority immediately as the Son of God, but these folks were so distracted and blinded by their own pride and status. And that's a warning for us as well, as we don't miss the Messiah. J.I. Packer said, We can know a lot about God and not actually know God. And he also later on said in his wonderful book, Knowing God, which I would Uh, recommend to you. He said, there is nothing more irreligious than self-absorbed religion. Oh, ouch. Look at what happens in verse 19. I know I'm going through this quickly. Jesus uncovers these, these leaders' hypocrisy and he calls them on the mat for seeking to kill him. And in verse 20, they flatly deny attempting to kill Jesus. They say, who is seeking to kill you? And they're like, not me, not us. That's not us. In verses 21 to 24, Jesus kind of piles on to them as he points out that they're hiding behind the law of Moses and judging others by a standard that they themselves do not keep. And he's pointing out the fact that they have a tremendous amount of religious education, but they're still ignorant of the things of God because they are missing, most notably, the promised Messiah in their midst. He says, you know a ton. 
And you're hiding behind this law and you are seeking to hold others to account while you yourself don't keep it. And I can tell that you know a lot about God, but you're missing Him. And you're missing me. Again, the Pharisees attempt to silence Jesus, and as they do it, it only leads to more people finding out about Him. And in verses 25 and 26, the inaction of the Pharisees makes the watching crowd re-examine Jesus' claims of being the promised Christ. They're like, this guy that they're trying to find, and we heard him teach, and maybe he is the Christ. Could he be? But that they still struggled with his claim to be from heaven because they're like, we know his parents. We know where he came from. We know his hometown. How can he say that he came from heaven like we know where he came from? But in verses 27 through 29, Jesus reiterates his heavenly lineage. Look at what he says there in verse 27. He says, but, the crowd says, but we know where this man comes from, and when Christ appears... No one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. He says, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. Again, he's doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on his call that I am the son of God. I have come from heaven. He does not back down from it, even just an instant, even in the midst of rejection, in the midst of such tension. And look at verse 30. You see that, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And this is a reminder of God's sovereignty. Despite the rising tension, despite all the plots against Jesus, all of this, every bit of it was under the sovereign control of Almighty God. It was this, wait for it, not yet. My time, your time has not yet come. Wait, wait for it. In verses 31 to 36, at this point, the Pharisees are at full boil, and they again seek to take Jesus out. And I want us to remember all of this tension as we kind of just quickly breeze through those verses. All of this is taking place at kind of the penultimate feast of the year. A time of thankfulness for God's provision. A, a time to be reminded of God's faithfulness to His people. And now the one who, as we learn in John chapter 1, put on flesh and dwelt, tabernacled with us. That promised one was right in front of them and they missed it. Ton of activity going on, lots of activity, and they miss Christ, the one who's right there in front of them, the one who actually came and dwelt and tabernacled with them. The whole thing, the whole, all of it pointed forward, and they miss him. And what's the big application from the previous 36 verses? Okay, that's a big chunk. What's the big takeaway? What's the big so what? Here it is. You can have all the outward appearances of religious life and still be devoid of a Savior. You can have all the outward trappings. You go to church, you go and do all the stuff and not have a Savior. Churchianity, not Christianity. Your lineage won't help you. Your family name in this town, it's not going to help you. Your education won't help you. Your participation in religious rituals won't help you. All of these are distractions. We look in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, And without faith it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Okay, so the big question this morning, we think about churchianity versus Christianity. We think about a life that may have a lot of religious stuff going on, but be devoid of a Savior. 
Okay, the big kind of call us all on the mat, myself included, questions as we're thinking about this morning is, do you have faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, and your King and Redeemer this morning? Do you believe that about Jesus? Do you claim Him? Do you put your faith in Him in this way this morning? Do you believe His claims about Himself? Do you believe that He is the Son of God as He quadrupled down? Do you believe that He is the Son of God? Do you believe and know that He is your only hope? Or are you still trying to save yourself? Are you growing in your faith? Or are you just content to punch the clock on Sundays and live your life as your own Savior the other six and three-quarter days of the week? Churchianity. Are you still clinging to something else as the real savior of your life? Do you want to know how to find out what that something really is? What this thing is that you really are clinging to? That this is the thing that saves me. This is the thing that matters. Wait until Jesus asks you to give it up for the sake of following him and being his disciple. Your money, your reputation, notoriety, whatever it is, we all have distractions in our hearts. Me too. I'm not up here claiming to be the only one who, I don't struggle with things that distract me from Jesus. Oh, come on. You don't think that pastors don't struggle with churchianity too? All the religious activity, all the stuff back and forth, prep this, prep that. The question that I'm even asking myself is like, how is my relationship with Jesus this morning? Do I love him? Or am I just going through the rituals? Am I just going through the motions? It's questions that Jesus asks us to wrestle with this morning as we look at this text. And are we really living as the only saviors of our lives? Are you growing in your faith? Or are you just content to come in and punch the clock for these little two hours that I'm here and then I go live as my own little God the rest of the week? That's churchianity, not Christianity. We need to ask God to help us see these distractions so that we can flee them and run to Christ because they're taking our eye off the ball. We're called to run the race with conviction, looking to who? Jesus, not ourselves. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter and finisher of our faith. We're to look to Jesus and Jesus alone, not to ourselves. And so we think about that. We think we have to just be honest with the distractions in our hearts. That's the first point. Realize that they're there. Take a second and think about them. What are the ways that we, how are we looking to save ourselves and what are those things that we look to? How are we just going through the motions and we're missing Jesus altogether? I would admit that none of us in this room, none of us us in this room, myself included, have hit the mark. We've all taken our eye off the ball. We all have these distractions in our hearts. Okay, so what do we do? That's our second point. We return to Jesus. Verses 37, 38, and 39. I don't know if you've ever watched a golf tournament. We'll take a little mental break here. I don't know if you've ever watched a golf tournament before. I like to watch them from time to time. And you'll notice on the courses, you know, you have the gallery that's now returned after the weirdest year of sports without fans in the, like, forever. And you're watching this golf tournament, and inevitably, there's always this guy, the crowd is hushed. We're on, like, it's a a critical moment, and this guy needs this drive. He needs to hit a straight one, put it in play. The crowd will be hushed. Guy makes the top of the backswing. He connects with the ball. And inevitably, there's always this guy that yells, mashed potatoes. Mashed potatoes! Every single time. 
I don't know how he gets in or if he sends a text to his buddies, but the mashed potatoes guy is always there, and he always awkwardly breaks the silence of the moment by yelling mashed potatoes. I guess I'm the only one who's seen him. (laughs) Now, think about this. Throughout this week-long festival of booths, every day a priest would come down through the water gate of the city walls to the pool of Siloam, and he would gather, wa- gather water from a spring there. He would take like this golden pitcher, and he would scoop up some of this water, and then he would return back up to the temple. And this pool of Siloam, it was known as living water because it was fed by a spring. So it was constantly moving and churning. It wasn't this stagnant pool. It was always springing up, so it was known as living water. And so the priest would scoop up this golden pitcher full of water, proceed back to the temple, go back up to the temple mount, and go to the altar of sacrifice, and then would pour the water out on the altar. This pointed back to God's provision of water from the rock in the wilderness, and it also pointed to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, which said, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord and call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Proclaim that His name is exalted. And all of this, every bit of this, pointed forward to the future promise of the Spirit being poured out on the last day. Here's what Gordon Ketty said in his commentary. He said, it, referenced, it referred symbolically to the Messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow over all the earth. And verse 39 gives us a little bit more detail on that. Now think about this. On the final day of the feast, this last day of the Feast of Booths was known as the Great Day. Let's re-say on the Great Day. Jesus went. The priest on this great day would gather water and then proceed back up the ramp to the altar. And they would actually circle the altar seven times. The other days they just went once. This last great day they would circle seven times around the altar, remembering what God did for his people at the walls of Jericho. Then the priest would raise the pitcher up and would actually pause for dramatic effect. And the crowd would fall silent. This is a high and holy moment. And in the life of Jew, all of the commentators that I read said that it was a great joy and honor and privilege to be able, even just once, to see the water poured out at the end of the Feast of Booths. This is a big deal. Some commentators also mentioned that a jar of wine was also poured out with this final pitcher of water at the same time. So you had this last great day, you'd have a pitcher of water. And think about this, the priest is raising the jug. And just at the right moment, when the crowd was silent and waiting for the water to flow, Jesus awkwardly breaks the silence. And look at what he says in verse 37, 38, and 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Think about this, Christ cuts through all of the temple fanfare and essentially says, that's me, I'm the rock, I am the stream of living water, I am the true spring, come to me and drink. Imagine him doing this, we think there's like 10 people around him. This is the big day in the temple, there's, I don't know how many people are there, thousands easily. And in this moment, as the pitcher is raised on high, Jesus cries out and breaks the silence like the mashed potatoes guy. And he says, that's me. I'm the rock. Come to me. I'm the spring. You don't think that caused tension? You don't think that raised the ire of the Pharisees who were already trying to kill him? You're out of your mind. 
We read these narratives in a very sterile way. And we forget that they happened in real space and time. And imagine Jesus doing this on the great day of this huge temple. And he cuts through it and he says, come to me. And Jesus is not talking about a physical thirst, although Israelites in the ancient Near East definitely knew what it was like to thirst in a hot, dry climate. Y'all probably knew what it was like yesterday when it was like a million and a half degrees and super humid. What Jesus is speaking about is the spiritual thirst at the heart level that none of these temple rituals could ever truly satisfy. Here's what Ian Duguid said, I'm almost done, hang. Here's what Duguid said, Moses struck the rock and water flowed to quench the people's thirst. At the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus offers living water to those who come to him. Jesus is the rock. Jesus will be struck. Water will flow from Jesus. And Jesus will give the Holy Spirit to sustain his people on their journey to the true and better promised land. Sadly, though, when we think about what's going on, we try to quench this heart thirst with things of the world, don't we? We feel this dryness that we have in our hearts, and we try to satiate that with things that come from outside of Jesus. Money, power, fame, vacations, religious performance, all these things that we think, I feel so dry, and maybe this will be finally the thing that will bring satisfaction to me at the heart level. But what we're reminded of is those are all broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Good as they might be, they have no eternal significance. They're just broken cisterns. They will eventually leak out and leave us dry. Christ is calling us back to himself. Christ is calling us all to the true source of life and satisfaction. Maybe even for the first time, if you're here and you do not know Christ. Hear this call to come to Christ and find satisfaction at the heart level. If you are here this morning and you are living in open rebellion against Christ, I would urge you as a minister of the gospel to repent. If you are here and you're just punching the clock and going through the motions and you have no living and active faith and you are not growing in your discipleship and knowledge of the Lord, let me ask you and beg you please to pursue Jesus Christ. He is the source of true living water. He is the source of satisfaction. Come what may, you might get fired. Someone in your family may pass away. You might lose your vacation days. But Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And will always be there. And it's promised, I'll be with you all until the very end of the age. And so we look to Christ. Now, remember at the beginning, remember that wait for it scene? Remember that? Bad guys are coming, good guys. <gasps> we need to go. We need to attack right now. And the leader says, Wait. Wait for it. Do you remember that scene, that tension that's there? Romans 5, 6 or 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were the bad guys, Christ died for us. You see, the illustration that we started with only makes sense when you see yourself as the bad guy. You see yourself as the bad guy. And instead of, just, instead of justly wiping you out from the bunker, Jesus climbed out of that bunker and took the bullet you deserved so that you could be made his friend. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. It's only going to make sense until you see yourself as the bad guy. And Jesus could have, from his high throne, wiped you out 
and you would have deserved it. But he didn't, did he? He climbed out of the bunker, came and tabernacled amongst us, took the bullet that we deserved in human flesh so that we could be made the children of God. It's the scandal of the gospel, and it's amazing. It's the best news ever. And if you are here this morning and you trust Christ, guess what? You used to be a bad guy. You still kind of are at the heart level. We all know that. I am Calvinist. But you have a new relationship, don't you? You have gone from an enemy to a friend. By nothing you have done, but simply by the grace of God. And so now, what's the call? We focus on Christ. We're okay if some of the little programmy, religious, ritual, churchianity stuff goes by the wayside as long as we stay laser-focused on Christ because of all that He has done. He alone is worthy of our praise, is He not? Because of all that He's done. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your mercy and Your kindness. Thank You for stepping into the fray, stepping into rejection, stepping into and leaning into all of this tension. You knew the cross was on the horizon from the very moment you came. And we are grateful, O Lord, that you did not leave us in our sin, but you came and you tabernacled and dwelt amongst us. And we do look with great hope to that future feast of booths when we look and we remind and we are reminded of all that you have done. When people from all nations, tribes, and tongues will gather together in your holy tabernacle, the ultimate holy high and temple, with you at the center. And we will worship and adore you. And we will drink deeply from the, from the rivers of life. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and know, reveal to us uh, blind spots that we have, these distractions that we have that are keeping us from you. Father, we pray that you would forgive us and help us to repent for all the ways that we might be just going through the church motions and we are actually missing you altogether. We pray that we would repent and return to you. Pray that you would work in our hearts, O Lord, and help us to see that we are great sinners, but yet you are a great Savior. And you have been so merciful, gracious, and kind to us. And may we live in the joy and the hope of that. Looking back for all the ways that you have been faithful to us, rejoicing in your faithfulness right now and looking forward with great hope for all the ways that you will care for us well into eternity because of Christ and the cross. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.